If you would turn to Isaiah, the 42nd chapter, and I have to say, I've done a lot of series through the years, but I don't think that I've ever anticipated getting to a subject as much as I have what we come to here today in Isaiah 42. And in the My Servant series that we've been doing, the Servant series, the, the last servant that we come to appropriately, chronologically, and obviously is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the greatest servant of all, of all time that ever was, ever will be. And I've really been looking forward to getting to this. And all of the servants that we've looked at and the characteristics that they had, they were flawed servants, you understand? The one we look at here this morning, there is absolutely no way that I can express to you effectively or adequately this servant because he's perfect and I'm not perfect. So let's read our text here this morning in Isaiah 42 and one. And remember, we're looking at the my servants of the scripture. And this is the most important one. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the owls shall wait for his law. Now let me give you a little bit of context and history about where we are in the book of Isaiah. I think it's very important. The book of Isaiah can be broken down in about three sections. The first chapter through the 37th chapter deals with what we would call a messianic king. Messianic being a word derived from Messiah. So chapters one through 37, you read a lot about a messianic king. Isaiah relates that. You think about Isaiah six, where he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He saw the king there, a messianic king. And then in chapters 56 through 66, you'll read primarily about a messianic conqueror. So first few chapters, you have a messianic king. The last few chapters, you read about a messianic conqueror. And then stuck there in the middle with chapters 38 through 55, you read about something entirely different. <laughs> and this is the messianic servant. And that's the subject this morning. My messianic servant. Very clear pictures are given of this messianic king. You know, Isaiah is very explicit in his descriptions of what he saw and of the things that that king would do. It's very clear in the last chapters of Isaiah about this conqueror, this messianic conqueror who will bring victory. Very much like a general in a war where he will bring victory. But this middle figure, this messianic servant is a very shadowy figure. It's almost like uh, something that comes out of the blue, something out of left field. And I wonder myself if Isaiah, I know he had a really good understanding of a messianic king because he saw him. And I'm pretty sure he had a good understanding of the messianic conqueror. I wonder what Isaiah himself thought about these three individuals. And did he even really understand that these three are one man? 
the Messianic King, the Messianic Servant, and the Messianic Conqueror are all one man, and we know him today as the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about the subjects that we've considered on my servant. You see, through the ages, through the centuries, this servant has appeared in different forms. We've looked at a few of those in the nine that we have looked at on the My Servant series. You see, this is Job's whirlwind. You remember the whirlwind that showed up? It was the Lord. This is Job's whirlwind. This is Abraham's ram caught in the thicket. You remember Jesus himself said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham saw God as the ram caught in the thicket. This is Moses' brass serpent that Jesus himself said that those that look upon me as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. This is that serpent. This is Jesus, that brass serpent. You could also say it's, it's Jesus, the burning bush that Moses encountered. Moses encountered him in a lot of different ways. I had a little bit of struggle on trying to figure out how Caleb saw him. Although we know that the Lord came down there and interceded for Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron the day that the people were going to stone him. But I got to thinking about Caleb. And you know, I believe that Caleb saw Jesus Christ in that mountain that he said when he was 85 years old. He said, you see that mountain over there? I'm going to go over there and take it. I believe that mountain was symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ. As, as Caleb went up that mountain to go and slay the giants, I believe that he could... He can feel the presence of the Lord. Amen. This is that everlasting temple, that everlasting throne that David saw. You know, David said, I want to build the Lord a house. The Lord said, you're not going to build me a house. Your son will. And I'm going to give, I'm going to put a, a man on the throne of David everlasting. This is that everlasting throne and that everlasting temple. As I've already said, this is Isaiah's high king that he saw high and lifted up there in the temple in the year that King Uzziah, that 52-year reigning king died and the nation was in political turmoil. This is Eliakim's glorious nail on whom all the glory of his father's house would hang. A nail in the wall that could not be pried loose or taken out. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's fourth man in fire. Nebuchadnezzar went, that old insane king, insane on his fame and insane and drunk on his power, cast those three Hebrew children into the fire in hatred, and he runs to the edge of the fire and he looks down there and says, did not we cast three men down there? I said, yes, O king. Then there's four down there. And he said, the fourth one looks like the son of God. This is the, mess the messianic servant. And this is also Zerubbabel's branch. I told you last week that it was told that a branch of David would come. If you look at that in the scripture, you'll find that when it refers to that, it's capital B-R-A-N-C-H. It's not lowercase. It's all uppercase. And that means the branch is Jesus Christ. Elusive. Unpredictable. The wild center of the universe. I tell you, it humbles me to even share with you thoughts about this messianic servant. The wild center of the universe. You think you've got God in your little box. You need only look at these examples of how he appears in a fire. He appears as a fire. He appears as a nail. He appears as all these glorious things that we see here. Don't tell me you can bring God down into my or your little box and say, well, we got him covered now. He's the wild center of the universe. And no one could predict how he would come in the form of a messianic servant where the Lord says, behold, my servant. I believe it was not clear to Isaiah that all these three king, servant and conqueror were one. How could they be? They're also different in contrast. A warlord who wars 
and bloodies himself and his garments are dyed in red and he makes war and he wins. Then a king who sits upon the throne legislating and, and doing the things that a king does with his subjects in all of his regal splendor and glory as a king. And then a servant. In one place it says he's a servant of servants. How does all this come together? How does this shadowy figure that we read about in Isaiah 42, how does it work? <laughs> There's four different servant songs in the scripture, in the book of Isaiah. Four servant songs. Interestingly, Isaiah 42, I didn't know this when I began studying it, but it's the first one. Mixed in the book of Isaiah are servant songs. And the first one is Isaiah 42. The next one is Isaiah 49. If you haven't heard the message that Elder David Crawford preached at Zion last Saturday, you need, to, you need to look that up and listen to it because he preached on that second servant song. Isaiah, the 50th chapter, is the third servant song. And probably the most popular of the servant songs would be Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. <laughs> You're very familiar with Isaiah 53 where it talks about the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. How do these work together as king and as conqueror? And why? Why a servant? Why would the Lord not present him in some other way? Why would he not present him as a preacher or as a priest? Or by the way, those things are kind of mixed in. But he specifically presents him as a servant. And I, the answer to that is found right here near our text. If you look in chapter 41 and verse 8. Why is he presented as the messianic servant? Look at Isaiah 41 and 8. It says, but thou Israel art my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. You see, the reason God presents a messianic servant is because Israel was his chosen servant. The nation of Israel chosen years before in the days of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, you see. And it brought out a bondage down there. God had chosen them. God had ordained them to be his servant. But there was a problem with these servants, was it not? They were fickle. And faithless and sinners. Can you identify with that? I hope you don't sit there and go, yeah, look at them. <laughs> you might not get much out of the message this morning if that's your attitude. Look at Isaiah back in chapter 42 and verse 18 and read with me. This is the servant that God had chosen. This is Israel. This is the nation of Israel. He had chosen them and nurtured them and instructed them. You're mine. I want you to follow me. I want you to do these things. And how would you like it if you went and you said, well, I'm going to hire a servant. And I'm not talking about a slave. I'm talking about an employee. I'm going to hire a servant to clean my house, to do things for me. Maybe some of you have somebody that you pay come in and maybe do some cleaning or whatever. Well, they show up and they're blind in death. How would you like that? How are they going to get all the dirt up? How are they going to do what they're supposed to do? They're not. Isaiah 42 and 18. Hear ye deaf, that's his servant, and look ye blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger that I sent. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes and they are hid in prison houses and they are for a prey and none delivereth for a spoil and none saith restore. You see the problem? God chose Israel to be his servant, to be his representative on the earth, to appear as this glorious nation following his law that was given in the days of Moses and they failed. And not only that, in the midst of these chapters right here, we read that they're going to go into captivity. They're going to go to Babylon. They're going to go from servants of God, chosen servants, nurtured by God, brought out of the desert, brought out from slavery. The emancipator has set them free, and now they're going into bondage again in Babylon. 
These servants are blind and deaf. This is a terrible predicament. Why does the messianic servant appear? God chose Israel to be his servant, a servant nation. And God was their king. He would be their ruler. And they rebelled. And not only that, they're going into bondage to Babylon for 70 years. And even worse, mixed in among these few chapters here, the Lord says that he would call a man named Cyrus, who was a foreign, pagan, Babylonian king, to be his servant. You understand how embarrassing that would be? His own nation wouldn't serve him. His own people wouldn't do the very simple things that he told them to do for worship and for law and to how to conduct themselves. And so the Lord says, because you wouldn't do it, I'm calling a man named Cyrus who hasn't even been born yet. You want to know why you can trust the Bible? Here is God predicting about 100 or 150 years later, a man that was going to be born who would deliver the people of Israel back into the land they're going to leave. He says, Cyrus, my servant. You know, it's, it's said in history that when the Jews who were in captivity took the book of Isaiah and they went and they read it to Cyrus, they got an audience with the greatest man on the planet, the dictator of dictators, the king of the world at that time. Somehow they got an audience. Well, you reckon they might have gotten it through Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego or even Mordecai? You see, there were still some of those trying to serve God, even in the midst of all of that captivity. And it's said historically that when they took the book of Isaiah and they read from these chapters here, and he said, behold, I have called Cyrus my shepherd, that it affected that king like you wouldn't believe. It affected him to such a degree that he actually did exactly what God said he would do. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That God directed the greatest man on the planet to do his will. And he said he was 150 years before. He said he's going to do it. So mixed in all this, you understand it hadn't happened yet. But mixed in all this, the Lord says, because Israel wouldn't serve me, they, I nurtured them, I cherished them. I was so kind and good to them. I didn't have to give them the law. I didn't have to go and bring them out of bondage. But God is so good and merciful that he did that. And he said they wouldn't serve me. They're blind, they're deaf, they're ensnared, they're in holes. They went from servant to slave. And they're going to be in Babylon. And the Lord says, but don't worry. I'm going to call a Babylonian king named Cyrus to send them back. Go read the book of Nehemiah. Go read the book of Ezra. It says in the second year, I think it was, of Cyrus, he sent them back. So why does the Lord present a messianic servant? Because during the course of him talking about Cyrus, calling this foreign king as a servant, the Lord begins to shift and talk about someone that's greater than Cyrus. Behold, my servant, he says. So mixed in all this where he talks about Cyrus initially, he shifts and he begins to talk about the messianic servant. You see, all these servants that we've looked at, they bear characteristics of Jesus, do they not? Whether it was Job's patience for all of what he went through, whether it's Abraham being faithful on the quest that he went on, whether it's David setting up in store for his son to build the temple, all these different characters bear characteristics of the messianic servant, but there are none like him. <laughs> And so this is a different kind of servant. This servant is not Cyrus. This servant is not a pagan king. It's not a, a someone he's going to call to send his people back. This is going, you know, Cyrus was going to take the people out of Babylon and go back to Jerusalem and the promised land. But it's a whole other matter, brothers and sisters, for someone to take Babylon out of the people. Do you hear me? 
Cyrus was just simply going to send the people back from Babylon. But they've got a lot of Babylon in them when they go back. But here comes a servant that's going to take Babylon out of the people. I love the song we sang this morning. If you didn't understand it, it ties in directly to the message. Babylon has fallen. Not only is there going to come a day when the messianic conqueror comes along and fells all of Babylon, which is symbolic of the world and the world system. He's going to fell it all as the messianic conqueror. But for you, child of God, for you today, as Babylon maybe wraps around your heart and Babylon wraps around the thoughts of your mind and the things that you think and the things that you do and it directs you, I tell you the messianic servant will set you free from Babylon. It will take Babylon out of you to where you can enjoy the things that you used to enjoy and you hate the things that you used to love. I testify of that as a witness myself of that. <laughs> the things I used to love to enjoy that brought pleasure for momentary times, I hate those things. I've heard people say many times, well, if I believe like you old Baptists believe that salvation is only by grace, then I just live any way I wanted to. That's indicative that they don't believe how we believe. <laughs> Because I believe salvation is by grace and there's nothing that I can do to fall out of the covenant or the hands of God. And I don't ever want to sin again because I see the messianic servant. I see what he did for me. If somebody says that, they haven't seen the messianic servant. Maybe this is your day. People talk about a coming to Jesus meeting. Maybe this is your day. Maybe this is your moment. I'm not talking about being born again or becoming a child of God. I'm talking about children of God who have Babylon holding on to them so tightly that they see the servant and Babylon begins to loose its grip on you. When you see the messianic servant, this is a different kind of servant. This is a servant that comes from God. This is a servant that knows God. This is a servant that will always, ever serve God. <laughs> you know why? Because this is a servant who is God. So Isaiah 42, God presents his servant. Notice he says, behold. That means to fix the eyes upon. I tell you, you've got to turn some things off. You've got to put some airplane mode on. You've got to shut the TV off. You've got to shut the Twitter feed down. You've got to get the Instagram out from in front of your face. In order to do what I'm describing here, and maybe you'll do it here for just a few minutes, but in order to fix your eyes upon the messianic servant, you've got to get some of this noise away from you. Get it away. Find your quiet spot. Find your quiet place. If you don't have one, I'll help you find one. I'll loan out a few of mine to you if you need one. Fix your eyes upon this messianic servant. Think of the views that we've seen. Could Job have ever predicted that that whirlwind was going to be this? Could Abraham, could, have, could he have ever predicted at looking at that ram that this servant was going to appear like this? Could Eliakim look at the peg in his house, the nail in his house, and ever predict or imagine that this, the one on whom all the glory of his father's house would hang, would be this messianic servant? So just fix your eyes upon him. As opposed to, look back in chapter 41 and verse 24. Notice it says, Behold, ye are of nothing. It's talking about idols. It's talking about Babylon. It's talking about things that are not Jesus, the messianic servant. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. Look at verse 29. Behold, they, idols, Babylon, those things that you put so much emphasis on, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. Behold, my servant. You see the contrast? He says, behold the idol, it's nothing. Behold the vanity of the things of Babylon, of the things that we hold so dear that become idols in our life. And then he says, behold my servant. <laughs> now fix your eyes upon my servant. Those things are nothing. Your Twitter feed's not going to be there with you on your dying bed. Matter of fact, your Instagram is not going to comfort you whenever you have troubles and trials in your life. Now listen, I'm not just talking to the young folks. I, told, I joked 
it wasn't a joke, but I told you about the 90-something-year-old lady that I read about a couple years ago who was addicted to Facebook. <laughs> it can happen to anybody. We're all sinners, see? But in contrast to those idols, in contrast to those things that would take us away from beholding and fixing our eyes upon the servant, the messianic servant, he says, behold, my servant. I want you to see the servant's position. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold. Now, listen, when we see that in our minds today, we don't live under a king. We don't live under a queen. But in our minds today, when we see that, behold, we think of someone holding another, like maybe a strong man holding somebody up. Behold, I uphold. Behold, I uphold my servant. But that is a good view. That's not an incorrect view, but it's also an additional view there because it literally means the servant on whom I lean on. You can picture a king and his right-hand man. And he comes down from his throne and he he puts his hand on the the servant, his right-hand man, his best man, his best servant. He's leaning upon that servant. That's another picture that is given here. When you see the servant's position, he's not just being upheld by God the Father. God the Father is also leaning on him as his right-hand man. It means to grip fast. I lean on this right-hand man. You'll read throughout the book of Isaiah, often the Lord says, I beheld and there was no man. And so the Lord says, my right arm brought me salvation. That's his right arm that he's leaning on, the Son of God. Not only that, but if you picture one on whom you would lean, it's walking along together. What a beautiful picture. A father and a son walking along together, step by step, every step of the way. Is that not the way that the ministry of the Messianic servant went? He constantly said, my father's with me. My father's blessed me. I'm doing my father's will. I'm going along the way my father told me to go. And even on the cross, when the Lord turned his back on him for just a small moment, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Notice he didn't say, my father, my father. You see, they were step by step, never dissension, never looking away from the goal. Behold, my servant whom I lean on. Not only that, he says, behold, mine elect. Notice the plural possessive right there. Why? God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mine elect. I possess this messianic servant. I possess him and I've chosen him. This is the selective love of God. Listen, don't ever be afraid of being called the elect of God because God has given you His name because His Son's name is the elect. You see, there was nobody qualified but the Son of God to do this role, you see. And He's given you His name. He selected Him because He's the best. A lot of people give a hard time about this election. Well, you're going to have to give me a hard time about who I chose to marry then. Not that they were lining up to marry me, but I could have chosen anybody that I wanted to. That, of course, was in agreement. I could have chosen any woman in the world if I wanted to. I mean, she might not have said yes, you know, but that's selective love. You understand? Because I have selected Sister Tracy to be my wife, it does not mean that I hate all other women in the world or all other people in the world. You see, it doesn't mean that I hate them. But I love her in a special way. That's how God designed marriage, you see? Nobody says, oh, Tim, you were just so unfair to all those other girls that were lined up to marry you, which there weren't. But it's the same thing as adoption, brothers and sisters. You don't ever hear anybody cry foul about the parents who go to the orphanage and they they pick a child out of the hundreds that are there. I remember when Brother Wayne and Sister Karen were looking for Keegan. They weren't just looking for a child. They were looking for Keegan. And they looked at thousands. 
And nobody cried foul and said, well, that was just so unfair for them to choose that one and not choose those other 3,000. Nobody cries foul on that. It's love. You understand? It's electing love. And the Father, who is the right-hand man, of, is the Son, He chose Him to do this task in a much greater way than me choosing Sister Tracy and, of course, her choosing me. You see, that's the electing love. Don't be afraid of that. If Jesus is called the elect, you want to be called the chosen, the elect. Because the bottom line is, you couldn't have done the job. I couldn't have done this job. And I think when you'll see the examples that are given here in just a few minutes that we look at, it's just astounding what this servant did. Not only do we see God saying, fix your eyes upon my right-hand man. Fix your eyes upon my chosen, mine elect. He says, in whom my soul delighteth. You see, that's, that's affection. You see the father's affection towards his son. Now this word here, this phrase... In whom my soul delighteth. It's a very interesting definition. I love the definitions. Y'all know me. I love that contextual definitional study. The word delight right here, it is associated with the feeling that you get when you pay off a debt. Are y'all listening? Have you ever paid off a mortgage? Who cried when you did that? You might have cried for joy. <laughs> oh, goodness, it's terrible. I just paid off my mortgage. I paid off the note. Nobody does that. Nobody in their right mind does that. When you pay off a debt, and some of you younger ones will understand one day, when you incur a debt or a mortgage or a loan, and when you pay that, that last payment feels good, does it not? It feels good. I remember when we paid off a debt that we had, I, I, it was, I, I, ju I jumped up and kind of danced around a little bit. <laughs> I said, it's a great day. <laughs> the debt is paid. Does that not make significant a significant point for what the Father says about the Son. The Father delights in the Son in the same way that we would delight in discharging a debt that we owe. You know why? Because He knows the Son's going to discharge the greatest debt that's ever been. The greatest mortgage, the greatest death note that's ever occurred, which was the note that Adam incurred in the Garden of Eden when he sinned. You see, that's the greatest debt that's ever occurred. It was a debt of death. And he knows the son is going to discharge that. My messianic servant, my high king, and my conqueror, my messianic servant is going to discharge that. You see the father's affection in the messianic servant? And lastly, in verse 1, we see the father's investment. The father has invested his spirit upon him. He says, behold, I have put my spirit upon him. We read that of Jesus, he said, it says he did not get the spirit by measure. God didn't measure out the Spirit to Jesus. Whenever God borns you again and gives you life, whether you realize it or not, the Lord measures out some of His Spirit and puts it in your heart and it'll never be taken back, brothers and sisters. Once saved, always saved. Once born again, always born again. That's the Spirit of the servant, by the way. But whenever it came to Jesus and the Messianic servant who said, I will go, I'm the chosen one, He poured everything onto Him. That's why you read in the book of Colossians, it says that the Godhead was expressed in Jesus Christ bodily because everything that God was was poured into Him. Isn't that beautiful? He said, I have invested in my Son because I know He'll do the job. I know He'll discharge the dead. Isn't that glorious? The Father's investment in the Son was to give to Him the Spirit, not by measure, but it was just all that He had. I'll tell you, that's how much God loves you, child of grace. He loves you. He gave all that He had into the Son. And He gave all that He had to the Spirit. And the Father gave all that He had in His electing, choosing love. Isn't that glorious? Makes you never want to sin again, doesn't it? That's the way it hits me. If it doesn't hit you that way, let's talk after the service. <laughs> Maybe need a little fine-tuning. The Father's investment was to pour Himself into the Son. And here's the Father's commission to the Son. Behold, 
my investment. Behold, my emotion. Behold, my son, my chosen. He says in verse 1, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Notice this recurs. Look at verse 3. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Look at verse 4. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth. (laughs) How about that? I think this commission of the son has something to do with judgment. Would you agree? (laughs) So notice he says the servant's commission is he will bring forth judgment. And then the second time he says he will bring forth judgment unto truth. And the third time he says he will set judgment in the earth. (laughs) Everything that's wrong is going to be made right. I know I've been hung up on the Lord of the Rings here lately. (laughs) I'm not making any apology for it. Those of you who hadn't seen it or read it, well, shame on you. You ought to go see it or read it. (laughs) I don't think this is in the movie, though. This is in the book. After Samwise Gamgee, Sam, who was the real hero, if you hadn't figured it out, Sam was the real hero of the Lord of the Rings because he never left the side of his friend. Sam and Frodo, have thought, they thought they died out there on the side of Mount Doom. But if you're familiar with that, you know Gandalf, they rescue them. But they're unconscious. And so Sam and Frodo don't wake up until days later after they've sort of recovered from that incredible experience of destroying the, the ring of power. And when Sam wakes up and he realizes he's alive, <laughs> first thing he sees is Gandalf, the wizard, standing there. And Sam darts up from the bed, and this is what he says to Gandalf. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Think about that now. He didn't say undone. He said, is everything sad going to come untrue? Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, in a much greater way than the fiction of Mr. Tolkien, which is really awesome, when the Lord Jesus Christ, the conqueror, returns, everything sad is going to come untrue. Are you sad today? You look around you and you see the things that are going on. Does it make you sad? Sister Tracy and I had a little time to kill. Friday afternoon, we were meeting some folks for supper. Sister Tracy said, let's ride across campus. We rode to the law school parking lot to see that unbelievable bridge they're building over the railroad track right into the law school parking lot, the baseball field parking lot. Baseball games playing. A bunch of folks out there having a good time. Great. Nothing wrong with having a good time. Nothing wrong with baseball. I'm not here to rain on anybody's parade. <laughs> I like football. I like a little baseball, but I really like football. So we, she said, let's ride across campus. So we rode. We came down Fraternity Road. There were these young men out there on a Friday afternoon. They were drinking. They were carrying on. We drove on across the quad, got down to the strip. It's about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. There were young people lined up going into the bar waiting to pay to go in. I thought of this right here. How many children of God? are disappointing their parents. How many children of God may not even be disappointing their parents because their parents don't even know to be disappointed? How many children of God, young and old, that are engaged in such sad things? And I'm going to tell you, let me just say this. When I looked upon that scene and I drove through there in tears and I thought, God have mercy on them. God have mercy on me. I want you to know I didn't think of a messianic conqueror. I thought of a messianic servant. A messianic servant who we're going to see here in the closing remarks this morning, had such compassion and such mercy upon those. I thought of what Sam said to Gandalf. Is everything sad going to come untrue? If you've ever been sad a day in your life, the song that we sing that I love says, Sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Everything sad is going to come untrue. All because of the messianic servant. It says that he would bring forth judgment. He would bring forth judgment to truth. He would set judgment in the earth. And everything sad is going to come untrue. How is he going to carry this out? How is this mysterious, shadowy figure 
that we've seen in different forms. How's he going to carry it out? What's the manner? Well, here the Lord says he shall not cry. He shall not lift up. He shall not cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think about that. Been a lot of conjecture and a lot of thoughts. Well, this means this. This means that I think that it's all legal terminology because he's just said he's going to bring forth judgment. He's going to bring forth judgment to truth and he's going to set judgment in the earth. And in those days, whenever judgment was decreed by a judge, the judge would cry it out into the street. And the judge would impose the punishment to lift up where it says to lift up means to bear up, to carry out the sentence. That's what that means. In some context, that's what that means. I believe, that's my thought, (laughs) you can take it or leave it, but I believe that's what he's referring to. That in the way that this man would establish judgment would not be in the conventional way that you're used to. The judge would go through the street and say, I've decreed, I have decreed this person is guilty. And then the judge would take him to the center of the, of the town and there would be the sentence imposed. A speedy sentence would be imposed. And the judgment, sometimes the death judgment, sometimes whatever it was, would be carried out. And then the proclamation, the declaration that the judgment has been decreed, the judgment has been carried out, the sentence imposed, that noise would be sounded through the street. They would cause their voices to be heard in the street. So everybody would know judgment has been done. But this one says... He shall not cry. He shall not lift up. He shall not impose the sentence the way that we're used to. He shall not proclaim that judgment as he goes through the town. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Verse 3, a bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. A lot has been said about those bruised reeds and about that smoking flax. It just means this, (laughs) tender and fragile people. Do you know any tender and fragile people? Do you know that that's what you are? Do you know that you're the bruised reed? You're the smoking flax. If if smoking flax doesn't register with you, think about it this way. A smoldering wick of a candle. Are you with me? A smoldering lamp that's almost about to go out. Or maybe you ladies, when you light that candle at home, you think, oh, it's not going to start. It just flickers a little bit. That's what he's talking about. The Lord says that he would not quench that smoldering wick. He would not break the bruised reed. So let's see how that works for the Messianic servant in our closing thoughts this morning. Turn with me to Matthew 12. Somebody may say, well, Brother Tim, you just haven't convinced me that this, behold, my servant, is really talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm about to convince you, or you'll just have to deny what the Scripture says. Matthew, the 12th chapter. Now, as we focus in on verse 14, I want you to think about what's leading up to this. In Matthew, the 12th chapter, this is where the disciples have gone through the corn and they have completely complied with the law by pulling an ear of corn here or there, eating it as that was part of the Mosaic law. They were in perfect compliance with the law. There was an exception in the law for gleaning. No problem. So Jesus has just argued with these legalists, with these Pharisees, over a few, few bites of corn. Y'all let that sink in. These legalists, these Pharisees, these judging persons who are constantly sitting there ready to judge and condemn and point the finger and break every bruised reed that comes along and quench every smoldering wick that they see. They're fussing with the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Messianic servant over some corn. <laughs> I know some of y'all are thinking about my mother and the corn that she loves. We're not going to go there today. That's, that's a funny story for another time. But we've done a little fussing over some corn through the years. But this is totally different. They've just got a few ears of corn and they're taking bites as they go because they're hungry, walking with Jesus. And as they go along, they begin to point the finger and say, why did your disciples pluck that corn? It's the Sabbath. He's fussing with them over some corn. These guys are bad news. Let me tell you, every legalist on the planet is bad news for the child of God. So Jesus refutes them 
over a few bites of corn. And then he goes into the synagogue, verse 9, and there's this poor old guy with a withered hand. You know, maybe he had Parkinson's. Maybe he had a stroke. But there's this guy, he can't even use his hand, you know. It's the old fellow over there, the old bruised reed, who can't use his hand. He's one-armed, you know, he can't use his hand. And so Jesus goes to that man, and he heals him. Praise God, hallelujah, all glory to the Lord. But verse 14, the Pharisees went out and held a council on how to destroy him. Come on, are you kidding me? They were merciless. They were judgmental and merciless. They would never judge their own lives. they just sit there and judge other people. That's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Can't eat that corn. Can't heal that man on the Sabbath day. Instead of saying, my goodness, there's a man healed on the Sabbath day. Do you see the difference? Can you imagine if there was one among us here this morning who had a withered hand or couldn't walk? What about Sister Leslie back there? What if, some, what if the Lord showed up and put His hand on her and all of a sudden she's kicking up and kicking around? Look at here. Who in the world would go say, you can't do that on Sunday? That's exactly what they did. Telling the Lord of the Sabbath. They looked at the Lord of the Sabbath dead in the eyes and they said, you can't do that. Oh, woe unto us when we look at the Lord, when we behold the Messianic servant and we say something like that in judgment. God forgive us. So here is this withered hand, man. And after this glorious thing, miracle takes place, they say, let's go out and destroy Jesus now. What a reaction. That's from the devil. That's from Satan. That's the accuser. Now watch this. But when Jesus knew it, He withdrew Himself from thence, and great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them all and charged them that they should not make Him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant who I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Now let's keep reading and watch what happens. Then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb, this broken reed, this blind man, this dumb man who couldn't speak, this, this broken reed, this bruised reed was healed. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth cast out devils but by Beelzebub. Y'all get that? Every time Jesus did something good, the Pharisees are there calling his hand on it. The disciples walk through and get some corn. The, the, the Pharisees, uh-uh, you can't do that. This is the original cancel culture right here. <laughs> They're trying to cancel Jesus. Every time he does something good, he, he heals a man in the synagogue on the, on the Sabbath day. Ought to be a time of shouting glory. They go out to try to kill him. This is the society that Jesus faced. Can you identify with that at all? It's still around today. I'm not just targeting the cancel culture, but that's part of it. <laughs> See, every time Jesus would do something good, they tried to cut him off. They tried to diminish the glory of the Messianic servant. There were, I've counted them up, four blind men, a deaf man, a dead girl's parents who was resurrected, a paraplegic, a leper, great multitudes, and his disciples. All of those had this in common. Jesus said, don't go tell anybody what I've done. You know, I, I just, I've studied that for years. And until beholding the Messianic servant, I just really didn't get the full effect of why Jesus would tell all these people. The leper's healed. He, he heals the leper. And he says, don't tell anybody. Just go show yourself to the priest. And do what you're supposed to do under the law like you've been healed. And don't spread it around. He says, the paraplegic who was there laying by the pool of Bethesda. You know, he tells these people, don't go out and broadcast what I've done for you. Why? I'm telling you, this is why. Because he knew 
as soon as they went out and began to say, can you believe what Jesus did to me? The cancel culture was going to come along. The Pharisees, the legalists were going to come along and they were going to break the bruised reeds. They were going to extinguish or quench the fire that had just been kindled by the Son of God. You think about these bruised reeds. Blind men who basically could only beg. A deaf man who couldn't hear. A man who's a paraplegic. A leper who nobody could have anything to do with. Are these not the the greatest examples of bruised reeds that you can imagine? And then here with the multitude where we're reading from in Matthew 12, it says the multitudes followed him. And he looked at the multitude and he said, don't tell anybody. The reason he did that is because he cared so much for them as broken reeds and as smoking flax, as smoldering wicks. He cared so much for them. He didn't want anybody to attack them. He didn't want them to go through what the blind man went through in John 9 where it says they cast him out of the temple. This man had been blind since birth. He'd never seen the light of day. And Jesus Christ makes it where he can see. And he goes in the temple. And you think he'd be welcomed by the temple, folks. You think he'd be welcomed by his parents who rejected him. You think he'd be welcomed by the nation. And it says they violently cast him out of the temple all because Jesus had healed him. That's how the Lord cares for you. He cared. He didn't care about his own fame. He didn't care about his own reputation. He knew what he was coming to do. He knew how he was going to present himself. He knew he was not going to fail or be discouraged. But he didn't want his children, his little bruised reeds, to fail or be discouraged. So he said, don't tell. You're just going to have trouble if you go and tell that I healed you. They're going to bark at you. They may bite you. They're going to be so ugly to you. So Jesus said, don't go tell it. Isn't that amazing? By the way, from what I can tell, there's only one that he said it's okay to go tell. There's only one. It was a wild Gadarean. Remember him? I called him in the Incredible Hulk of the New Testament. He went ballistic when people tried to restrain him. But when Jesus got off that boat and the disciples stepped back, probably grabbed a stick, wondering what they're fixing to do here, it says that that wild Gadarean, that, that hulk of a man, that, that insane man who had devils in him, came and laid down at the feet of Jesus. Let me tell you, that's what the Messianic servant does, is you lay down at his feet when you behold him. You don't lift up yourself in pride. You don't lift up and cry. You don't lift up a finger and point the finger at others. You lay down at the feet of the Messianic servant. And this wild Gadarean came and laid down at the feet of the Messianic servant. And Jesus cast out the devils out of him. And they put clothes on this man. And he sits there. And Jesus looks at him. And the man wants to follow him. They're getting on the boat. And the man's like, I'm going with you. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And Jesus turns to him and he says, nope, you don't need to go. He says, go home and tell. Who did he tell him to tell? Tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. It's the only place. It's the only place. Brothers and sisters, if you don't see your friends in the kingdom of God, in the church of God, if you don't see them as the most prized possession that you have, then you need to take another look at the servant. He's the only one. Because you know why? Because he knew when this wild Gadarean would go home, it wouldn't be the legalists there pointing the finger and saying, what are you doing here? Where'd you get those clothes? What happened to you? No, it'd probably be his mama. It'd probably be his daddy. It'd probably be his brothers. It might be his wife. It might be his children. They said, what happened to you? I met the Messianic servant. All those demons, all that trouble that was taking control of me, I fell at his feet and they're gone. Your boy is back. All because of the Messianic servant. There's no servant like Jesus before. There's no servant like Jesus after. There will never be a servant like Jesus. This servant shall not fail nor be discouraged till he send forth judgment unto victory. Did you know this? And I'll leave you with this. The political climate the turmoil, the culture, everything got so bad and the Pharisees were hammering so hard on everybody that he dealt with that finally 
Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? This is in Matthew 16. It's in, in the account of this is in Mark. Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, don't tell anybody that I'm the son of God until I'm resurrected. How about that? I tell you, the resurrection is the linchpin. It is where he sent forth judgment unto victory. So Peter, who knew he was the Christ, and Jesus said, son, if you start going around talking about me right now, they're going to murder you. They're going to put you in jail. They're going to, they're going to just knock you down. They're, you're a bruised reed and they're going to break you. Don't tell them that I'm the Christ. Wait until the resurrection. And then he stands up on the day of Pentecost and they say, who are these men? These are just common men. These are fishermen. And they're standing up and they're preaching the glorious truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The messianic king who ascended the throne through the resurrection. The messianic servant who served like this and didn't break a bruised reed. Didn't put out a smoldering candlestick. And the conquering one who came forth in the resurrection unto victory. O grave, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. This is a servant you can serve. This is one you can follow. This is one that shall not fail, nor be discouraged. He has brought forth victory. And He cares so much about you as a bruised reed, as a sad reed. Are you sad? I see things around me every day that make me so sad. And I come back to the little statement of little Sam. Every sad thing is going to come untrue. That's a fact. So all the sadness that you experience now, all the trials, all the troubles, all the persecutions, all the issues that you face... You remember that there's going to come a day when we stand before the Lord and every sad thing will come untrue because of the messianic servant, because he cared enough that he didn't even want a bruised reed, us little fragile, tender reeds to be broken. He became the broken reed. He became the quenched fire. And in his resurrection, even in spite of that, he conquered. If you believe in this messianic servant, I'm just going to tell you, there's not a whole lot of places out in the world that you're going to hear about him. If you hear about him this morning, then that bench ought not to hold you down. You ought to get up off of it, come down and say, like the wild Gadarean, and fell at the feet of Jesus. I'm not saying fall at my feet. Although that has happened one time. <laughs> I'm not saying fall at my feet. But fall at the feet of Jesus and say, I've got nowhere else to go. We'll give you that opportunity.